The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is Lawfare Senior Editor Scott R. Anderson with a quick announcement before today's episode. Today is the one-year anniversary of one of the most significant global events in recent memory, the collapse of the U.S.-backed government in Afghanistan, which precipitated weeks of chaos as U.S. troops exited the country. That's why this week on our separate Lawfare Presents podcast feed, we're re-releasing our seven-part special series, Allies, which tells the story of the failed Afghan SIV program and how America left so many Afghan partners behind when it withdrew. To find it, Just search Lawfare Presents Allies wherever you listen to your podcast. Here's a preview of what you'll hear. After 20 years of war, the U.S. was getting out of Afghanistan. After consulting closely with our allies and partners, I've concluded that it's time to end America's longest war. It's time for American troops to come home. There are scenes of panic and pandemonium at Kabul airport today as desperate people pour onto the runway trying to flee the country. Shocking scenes of desperation and chaos in Afghanistan are being seen around the world. The withdrawal from Afghanistan ended in chaos at an airfield in Kabul. In the face of that mayhem, the military got thousands of Afghans who worked with the U.S. out. But despite the efforts of veterans, lawmakers, and senior leaders in the military, even more were left behind. Their fate was decided by which side of a wall they were on, and whether or not they had the right pieces of paper. Now, they live in hiding. We were the eyes and ears of U.S. troops in Afghanistan. The Taliban knew all this. That's why they used to shoot at them first. Why is it so hard to track the number of interpreters, translators, and contractors killed as opposed to U.S. soldiers? Because nobody wants to know the number. This show takes you inside their lives, the threats they faced, their attempts to escape, and the obstacles the U.S. government put in their way. I moved my family from location to location three times. There's no option for us. Some days they only find you. He was just banging his head against the wall trying to figure out how do I unstick this. The problem was not the idea. The problem wasn't the legislation. The problem was the execution. Our story takes you from the front lines of the war to the halls of Congress to find out how did this happen? From Lawfare and Goat Rodeo, this is Allies, a podcast about how the U.S. government failed our eyes and ears. 
the Afghan translators, interpreters, and partners who fought alongside the U.S. I think the danger there, though, is that while, as you said, of course, if if the decision maker disagrees with you, it's your responsibility to go back and really thoroughly second guess yourself and recheck and everything else. But if then your your experts continue to look at things and continue to submit analysis and predictions based on their best understanding, that could easily be misinterpreted as you're fighting the problem, you're not a team player, you're not on board, because they keep saying, well, you know, this is probably not going to work because of, and I really don't have an easy answer to that, because as I've said in the book, I think that a wise decision maker in any business should like to have someone who has not drunk the Kool-Aid, who right. is not not committed to the course of action that the boss wants. I'm David Priest, publisher of Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, August 15th, 2022. What is the proper relationship between the intelligence community and national decision makers in the United States? The author of a new book argues that for intelligence to be accepted as a profession, it must be viewed as a nonpartisan resource assisting key players in understanding foreign societies and leaders. That author is Jonathan House, a retired Army intelligence officer and military historian who wrote Intelligence and the State, Analysts and Decision Makers. Jonathan joined me in the Virtual Jungle studio to talk about intelligence as a profession, the responsibilities of senior intelligence leaders, and how Samuel Huntington's classic soldier and the state framework applies to intelligence. It's the Lawfare Podcast, August 15th, Intelligence and the State, with Jonathan House. John, your career gives you extensive and varied experience in and around intelligence to apply to how we look at intelligence as a profession. Can you walk us through a little bit of that experience and the many angles from which you've been able to look at the intelligence profession? Well, angles is a, is a polite point of view, I might say, backed into. I went to graduate school in military history and at the same time did ROTC so that I got commissioned the same day I got my doctorate. And, uh, Started out as an armor officer, but for medical reasons, ended up being reclassified. And obviously, when I said, I need another specialty within the Army, they said, well, look at your education. We want military intelligence. Uh, so I have, over time, taught and written a lot for the Army, but I've also done all the mundane things that you have to do. As, as an Army officer, I spent over a year in the Army's intelligence school doing such brilliant things as dropping sensors out of helicopters and uh, backpacking radars across the desert at night. And I don't mm -hmm. know what else, but uh, uh, then I've sort of worked my way up uh, as being a battalion intelligence officer first as a lieutenant, uh, which means you're basically just trying to tell your commander what the enemy is doing. And then a division intelligence officer, one of the many analysts, not just not the head G2, of a division in Korea, we're actually watching live 
uh, North Korean operations all the time. Went back and forth. I eventually was, thanks to my mentor, I was able to get assigned to the Defense Intelligence Agency, which provides the, the J-2, the intelligence analyst for the Joint Chiefs of Staff, just the same time that Saddam Hussein was invading Kuwait in 1990. And so I became an instant Middle Eastern analyst, mostly listening very carefully to the advice of the real experts around me until I got worked into it. One way or another for the either active duty or reserve for the next 15 years, I was really doing that same job. So that I ended up being in the Pentagon watching Iraq and trying to explain what Iraq was doing to decision makers for both the 1991 and 2003 wars. Uh, and in the course of that, I was a little fly on the wall observing to, you know, as, as a very minor character, what seemed to be going on in relationships between the political appointees who ran the Defense Department and the intelligence analysts who were trying their darndest to give them a, a real understanding of what was happening on the ground. That was the origin of really my concern, and I, I think that concern is reflected in a lot, large part of the, the book. Mm. So it's interesting. You've had the, the perspective, at, you know, like you mentioned, at the battalion level, doing the intelligence thing, but all the way up to briefing the, the Joint Chiefs. And it's still intelligence, but it's such a difference in terms of the tactical to the strategic and the experience of the people receiving the intelligence. And that, that gives you an interesting perspective on intelligence as a profession. And I really want to zoom in on that because you've highlighted that in the, what, 65 years or so since Samuel Huntington published his seminal, The Soldier in the State, which I don't know a single person who has done a graduate program in international relations or any related national security field who isn't familiar with that book. But for the listeners who, who have not done those things, tell us a little bit about Samuel Huntington's Soldier in the State and what it attempted to do for the military as a profession interacting with policymakers. And then we'll springboard from there to talk about its application to intelligence. Well, first of all, Samuel Huntington is unquestionably a genius. Uh, he got a PhD from Harvard at the age of 23. And somewhere in there, before, before between college and graduate school, he managed, I think, about 10 months on active duty at the very end of World War II. I don't mm. think he ever saw any combat. He wouldn't have had time to. But that was his sole exposure to the way the Army really works. Mm -hmm. And coming out of that, he was very concerned. And you can feel free to pitch in because you're the political science guy here. But he was very concerned that the... The military in the Cold War were becoming pro-consuls, mm -hmm. that people like Douglas MacArthur had the expertise and, the, and the, the knowledge, and they knew it. And so they had a tendency to sort of walk over the line and infringe upon civilian authority. And so Huntington set out as a very young man to uh, write this study, which, which he said, first of all, the Army Officer Corps is a profession. He didn't believe in sergeants being being professionals then, which since then we changed, but never mm -hmm. mind that. The mm -hmm. Army Officer Corps is a profession. Here's the, what qualifies it to make it a profession. And this is how I think it should 
interrelate with political authority to make sure it's being obedient and not not crossing any lines. And so now I thought that, uh, and your experience may be relevant here too, I thought that 50-some years later, we're pretty much facing the same issue with the intelligence community. The intelligence community has, has largely grown up since 1945, and it's completely unknown to the average public or even the average decision maker that they they tend to think that military that intelligence is James Bond and things like that mm-hmm. uh, and, and therefore we need to apply the same rules we have to say okay being an intelligence officer is a profession and here's why and then this is uh, how the intel profession, just like the military profession, should correctly interact with the civilian authority in order to support it best. Because we as a nation are, are spending billions of dollars on an intel infrastructure, the intelligence community. And if it's not, if the results aren't used properly, we're basically wasting the taxpayers' money. Right on. So going back to the, the soldier and the state, I recall that Huntington offered three defined criteria for defining a profession. And of course, in this case, applying it to to military command. What were his criteria for defining a profession when it applied to the military? Well, we have to sort of uh, paraphrase here, and you've probably taught this, but I, what it seems to me clear is that he said, number one, you represent the profession to the decision makers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Number two, you advise on... If you have a particular course of action that you're considering, what's the probability of success? What's the costs in terms of, obviously, casualties and things like that? And number three, even if the decision maker does not agree with your interpretation, you still have to do your best to execute loyally mm-hmm. what the decision maker wants to do. Yeah, and that's that had been known before it had been talked about, but his framework was very clear in doing that. And I think his, his added value at the time was building that on the framework of what everyone from a, an attorney to a physician, to a teacher would have to define themselves as a, as a professional things like important functions that are performed exclusively by that group things like having a combination of extensive experience, but also formal education that is specific to that profession. And of course, things like some self-regulation within the profession, some kind of discipline among its members. And I think his point, to the extent I can remember it from graduate school, was that the, the military checked these boxes, right? Absolutely. Uh, And of course, the problem we have is that in this country, I don't know what it was like in the 1950s, but certainly today, we use the word professional just to describe anybody who works full time at a task. And your criteria that you mentioned, Mm. uh, which were Huntington's, I think comes a lot closer to defining what is or is not a profession. Right, right. So your background originally was in history. And if I recall, your doctorate was in French military history. In kind of looking at that wider history than the narrow straw that we look through in American history, do you find that that does apply in modern military relations, that the evolution over the past hundred years has moved towards that Huntingtonian ideal of professionalism? 
Oh, absolutely. Now, and of course, you can argue that some some armies are ahead of others. Uh, the the British Army, I think you'd have to say, because they've been at it for several centuries longer than the American Army, have a, have a fairly clear definition of what their relationship is to civilian authority and how and and same thing goes for British intelligence, how they can serve the political masters and not inadvertently cross the line and do something partisan that they shouldn't do. Mm -hmm. Okay. So with that as background, you wrote the book recently uh, called Intelligence and the State, echoing Huntington's title, Intelligence and the State, Analysts and Decision Makers. And in the book, you try to apply this framework to intelligence. So let's go ahead and do that. Let's first look at these criteria that define a profession and see if intelligence applies. So does society delegate an important function that is performed exclusively by intelligence analysts? What do you think? Um, yes, as you know, there are many people who work very hard, work incredibly long hours, even in peacetime, to try to understand what our adversaries or even our allies are doing in order to explain that honestly and accurately to the policymakers. The drawback is that Huntington was saying, basically, society delegates a function to these professionals. Right. I'm not sure that the average American, or certainly the average American politician, with all mm -hmm. respect to them, is willing to delegate that function, and maybe therein lies the problem. I think that's a fair point, is there's certainly a wider spectrum there from policymakers and just the general public towards intelligence than there is towards the military, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I should qualify this by saying, if you are a decision maker, elected or confirmed by the Senate or somebody like that, then it is your responsibility to make the best possible informed decision. And I don't question that. The problem is if that decision maker is not willing to at least give a fair hearing to what the intelligence analysts are trying to explain to him or her. Right, right. All right, let's move to the second one then. The the second definition of a profession is that the the practice requires a combination of both formal education and extensive experience. Do you think intelligence analysis has moved closer to that one? Oh yeah, absolutely. In fact, it really has even since I went through the system. As I'm sure you're aware of I'm, my last job in the Army Reserve basically was on weekends. I would fly to, to D.C. and with a bunch of other reservists, we would teach the classes in, in the Defense Intelligence College. There's an unfortunate mm -hmm. acronym, yeah. but uh, <laughs> uh, which was established by uh, Defense Intelligence Agency to try and and uh, do just that, train yeah. real strategic analysts. And we had people from all the different agencies and, and all, a lot of reserve and active components from all over the world who would come in every weekend. Well, mm. okay, we did that. Uh, and since I, I was engaged in that, because I retired in 2006, uh, as you undoubtedly know, the Defense Intelligence College has been taken over and greatly expanded into mm -hmm. a an intelligence university right. on behalf of the community. And I don't know very much about what they're doing, except they had a pretty good base to start with. So I'm hoping it will it will help people develop skills here. Yeah. Yeah. It's such a, a difference, John, between the way that intelligence analysts across the board, I would say, 
were were brought into the business and trained even some 30 or 40 years ago, much less 50 or 60 years ago, when the common stories you hear from even the people like the the Bob Gates and the John McLaughlin who came in would say, well, I came in and maybe I was recruited because I had a graduate degree in Russian studies or something relevant to what the intelligence agencies wanted. But I was brought in and then I was sat down at a desk and handed a stack of reports, actual paper reports, nothing online, and told, okay, start learning. You know, here's a mentor, listen to him or her, and you'll learn how to do the business by doing. And what a difference to now when virtually every intelligence agency has its own schoolhouse and training program for new analysts. And often, you're right, they are sent to a national intelligence university with coursework, with accreditation. That sure sounds like a professionalization on that side of formal education. Yeah. And of course, if you go even farther back, prior to about, let's say, 1960, Mm -hmm. in many instances, what happened was an ordinary, what I would call a line officer, infantry, armor, whatever, would be assigned to be the S2, the intelligence officer for a battalion. Mm -hmm. And he might get to go to a short course, but basically it was on the job training. Right. And often without even a mentor. Or maybe you go to the next higher headquarters and pray that that guy is more experienced than you do. But uh, it it very much was uh, catch-as-catch-can, on-the-job training. I mentioned that I I spent oh probably a total of 14 months at Fort Huachuca, Arizona, way in the middle of nowhere, uh, in which they tried to teach me. The orientation was, of course, on military tactical intelligence. If if you're confronting a Soviet-trained enemy, how is he likely to display his troops? What is his what is his most likely course of action, and so on and so forth? But then beyond that, it was pretty much on the job training, based on the fact that I had uh, had the education. And you're right. When I got to Korea, uh, we just would basically have they first they'd make us memorize the entire North Korean order of battle which is, you know, so many divisions and regiments and so many aircraft and so many submarines and everything else. And where are they located? While you're reading the the messages, the traffic every day and trying to sort of think yourself into this, that you understand the problem, there really wasn't any formal school for it. Right. So let's look at the third criterion, which I think is a bit trickier for us here, which is that the profession to be a profession is supposed to be a self-regulating corporate body of some sort that disciplines its own member and enforces standards. It feels like we're not quite there yet when it comes to intelligence. What do you think? No, I would agree with you. We're not there. We're, we're getting there. But sometimes, in fact, uh, this is another instance where the political decision maker feels compelled to reach down into the intelligence world and try to discipline someone. And if that if that someone is actually genuinely incompetent, cool. But if that person is simply disagreeing with that person, uh, there was one individual, and I don't want to describe any farther, but the political appointees in the Department of Defense while I was there in, say, 2004 or five, mm-hmm. decided this individual was a uh, Palestinian agent, and they insisted on giving the, the the individual three different polygraphs, 
And they never, of course, found any evidence that he was, and I don't think he was, uh, but that's just the way they looked at it. Interesting. I mean, we, we have such a, a compelling contrast here just on the professionalization side of it between the military analysis and the intelligence analysis, because here you can look back in history and you can find Roman emperors who were the political rulers but also did literally lead the battles. They were the military strategists and commanders. And even into the modern era, you would occasionally find heads of state who also wanted to be their own senior military advisors. Mm. But that did wane over the centuries. And most rulers learned, if you want to succeed as a military officer, you're probably best having some professional soldiers, some professional military advisors. But I would argue that's not so true of intelligence, that even up to the modern era, most rulers and commanders were their own intelligence analysts. What do you think? Oh, no, absolutely. And, and if you read people like Frederick the Great and, and Clausewitz and so on, they just assume that the commander, it's on the Napoleonic model more than anything else, that the commander is his, or we would say today, or her, own intelligence analyst, that somebody else may collect the information, but that person ultimately has got to make the decision as to what what the opposition is likely to do. And I have no problem with that. I simply think that maybe they should seriously consider what the intelligence analysts present to them. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I mean, Washington kind of did that, and Napoleon kind of did that, and I think a lot of modern decision makers do that. And and there's there's a reason for that, I think, John, to some extent, which is, let me give an example. If you're George W. Bush and you have been involved in Iraq uh, since 2002, 2003, 2004, you're nearing the end of your term. It's 2007, 2008. And you have some analysts of Iraqi affairs who are trying to tell you something as commander in chief about political dynamics in Iraq, and they've been on the job for three or four years. You, as the president of the United States, have been knee deep in Iraqi political analysis yourself for longer than those analysts. And it's understandable that the political leader who has phone calls with foreign leaders, who is reading all the intelligence on the foreign leaders, who is having meetings in that case almost every day about the political dynamics in that country, 
I might not like it as an intelligence officer, but I certainly can understand a leader at that level who does some of his own intelligence analysis. Well, absolutely. And in some instances, the political decision maker has actually met these people, which is something that rarely, if ever, happens to the intel guys. And so they really do have their own view. We we have to pray that they weren't misled or deceived by yes. the other guy, but they obviously have some personal experience. What concerns us is, and, and obviously they did not get there unless they were they were people of decision. Mm -hmm. If they were willing and able to reach a conclusion and say, we're going to do this. The problem is once you've reached that decision, if it's wrong, it's very hard for you to recognize when somebody comes to present uh, an alternative to you. But I agree. Obviously, the decision maker, and I thought I said that earlier, is ultimately responsible for the decision. So the decision maker has to be the ultimate, you know, has to be a decision maker about what intel as well. But all I'm asking for is if you have spent all this time and money developing people who have really studied it, and by the way, Somebody who's been working in one of the agencies for three years full time has actually spent more time on the subject right. than the president who has a thousand other things to worry about. You know? Right. That's a good point. You've you've hit both both of the counterpoints well there. You know, first of all, that the personal experience with foreign leaders is, is something that does matter, but it also can be deceptive. It is easy for human beings to deceive one another and maybe even shy of deception. It's easy to place too much weight on what a foreign leader tells you in person rather than looking at the entire history and the entire array of forces governing that country's behavior. So that's one. And then I think the, the second one, which is, yes, you may have a leader who engages quite a bit with a particular country or region and becomes somewhat of an expert on it, but they're still not spending 8, 10, 12 hours a day diving into the minutiae that a true expert will do. So I think there is something there that still says intelligence as a profession has value to the policymaker and most policymakers ultimately do recognize it. Yeah. And let me add something that I know you're familiar with. I don't know if your audience is. Uh, one of the first things you learn in intelligence is capabilities versus intentions. Mm -hmm. If the decision maker believes that he or she knows the intentions of the enemy or the, the opponent even, that decision maker is likely to overlook the fact that, gee, the, 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 the opponent, the uh, adversary has a capability to do something else that may be very disastrous. Mm -hmm. So one of the things eventually we did in the army is said, first you, you brief the most likely course of action, but then you also brief the most dangerous course of action. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. just in homes that you haven't inadvertently assumed away a possibility that would be negative. Right, right. Let's look at the other application of Huntington that, that you have looked at, which is the responsibilities of the profession to the state. And you mentioned them to start out, the representative function, the advisory function, and the executive function. From the military side, I think we generally do see that. You see admirals and generals who can spend up to 30 years studying and practicing their professions before they reach the four-star level. Intelligence, you sometimes see that. Occasionally, you will get a Jim Clapper or a John Brennan who ends up as a senior intelligence advisor to the president who has built up that expertise within the profession. 
But sometimes you get appointees who who don't do that, people who are somewhat of a political appointee who are named to run an intelligence agency. So let's talk through those those three functions with a mind towards intelligence leadership in the last few decades and see whether you think it holds well. So first, Huntington's responsibility of representing the profession to decision makers and advising in general terms on what the intelligence community believes are the risks to state and society, basically to help decision makers understand the adversarial point of view in order to protect national security. Do you think that the intelligence community as it has evolved and intelligence leadership as it has evolved is performing that representative function? I think the intelligence community is attempting to perform that function. This goes to something else, which is the credibility of a particular intelligence leader or executive or director, manager, whatever you want to call it, when dealing with the decision maker. And I'm, this happens in the military, but I think we sort of got beyond it. But it, it, my, my concern is whether it happens in the civilian sphere, that the intelligence leader spends so much time trying to be friends with and understand what Mm -hmm. the decision maker is doing Mm -hmm. uh, that frequently, for example, the expectation of the the manager, the leader is you are going to come personally brief me every morning. Mm -hmm. And a lot of intelligence guys do that and they may establish a relationship, but that also means that then they are not able to do the rest of their job because they have to basically uh, get up at three in the morning, study the briefing so they can explain it to the to the decision maker. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then in, if you're – I used to work for a long time for the, the J2, the, the flag officer who was the senior intel guy mm-hmm. in the Joint Chiefs of Staff staff. And he would spend probably half of his day – waiting outside of offices of, of undersecretaries and different senior officials, military or civilian, just to give them a briefing. And then they have to explain the things. And okay, he, he may be able to better represent the agency because he's the, or Intel, because he's got that personal relationship. But the drawback is that he or she is not then able to do the rest of the job. I think that's a, a really good point, and it depends both on the intelligence leader and also on the political leader, because some intelligence leaders will be inclined to do that. Perhaps they are exceptionally good briefers. Maybe they're very clear, they're very articulate, and they're, they're very good at doing that. It may also be on the policymaker side that the president or the senior civilian leader says, I want my top intelligence advisor in the room. The problem there, of course, is you get to a point like, I think it was Porter Goss who told me when I interviewed him for my book about the PDB, he he knew that the president's daily brief was the top priority for the president in intelligence matters. And he said he made it his biggest focus and spent something like five hours every day with the PDB, going through draft articles and background material going through it early in the morning before going downtown, then waiting for the president, then following up with questions. And if you're the director of central intelligence, which he was at the time, uh, and you're spending more than half of a standard work day solely on the vehicle for communicating intelligence to the president, when you already have a briefer whose job is to do that, you're right. That, that has 
a detrimental effect on the leadership of the organization, doesn't it? Yeah, and I think George Tenet's experience is very much the same. Mm -hmm. He was able to establish a relationship so that he could perform that function of representing. But as you said, it took a great amount of time. During the 2003 war, I spent literally my job finally was to proofread the PowerPoints and help explain them to the major general of of Air Force, who was a superb gentleman, don't Mm -hmm. get me wrong, uh, who came to work to see me the first time at 3.15 in the morning. And then we would have various iterations of the briefing until it was where he wanted and he understood it. Mm -hmm. And then, starting about 7 a.m., he would be going around to different offices and so on. So when did he have time to do anything else? Right. It's a tough trade-off because... Doing that representative function, some political leaders do want that. Um, Of course, there have been others who have said, no, I'm happy to see a working level officer every day. And several presidents, which I focus on more, several presidents have done that, where they've had working level briefers come in and brief them, and they might meet with their director of central intelligence or now their DNI often, but not every day doing the actual briefing no, itself. You cannot do that. Yeah. And and they tried, and I'm sure you've perhaps seen, there are different sort of halfway steps. During the, the 91 war, yeah. as a major, mm. I would go in early and brief not, the, not Mr. Cheney, the Secretary of Defense, but his immediate staff officers. Mm-hmm. And I didn't realize, because I was too naive, that that was a way to sort of back channel, give more information. But I would brief them so that then they could look smart, if you will. And then the, Mr. Cheney would actually get his briefing, his black book, several hours later. That makes sense. Well, let's turn to the related second function, which Huntington lays out, the advisory function, which is when asked and sometimes when not asked to provide the most reasoned interpretation of an opponent's potential actions or responses and the risks for that course of action. This is being, and I think it's in the legislation for the DNI, being the chief intelligence advisor to the president. How well do you think intelligence leadership is serving the advisory function? I have never, of course, been there personally. You may even have have closer contact to them. And certainly I haven't been active since the DNI started in 2005. My impression is they're doing the the best they can. And again, it goes back to they had to establish credibility with with the president. I think they're probably doing a fairly good job. But again, here is a question of not only do they not necessarily have the time to prepare for this, but does the president really have time for an in-depth discussion Mm -hmm. of what the intelligence community thinks and needs and advises? And when you come to courses of action, the way Huntington described it, it would be, the decision maker would say, this is what I want to do. And then the intelligence guy or the, the soldier, excuse me, in the case of Huntington would say, yes, sir. Well, this is the likely outcome and this is the likely costs. Uh, okay, cool. But now I'm afraid that what actually happens, um, as my understanding is, frequently the president will ask the intel guy, okay, you tell me the courses of action and I'll tell you which one of them I want to choose. And that's that's mm-hmm. a whole other trap. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's a different path for sure. Okay, well, let's turn to the the third function then the the executive mm. function, and this is slightly different yeah. for many sides of intelligence than it is for military matters. But on the intelligence side, you describe this as 
when a policymaker uh, questions an estimate or a judgment and says, I don't see it that way. It's actually the job of the intelligence officer to to consider that, to to basically scrub the analysis, make sure it's right to take the policymaker's concerns seriously, mm-hmm. but to help his or her organization continue to provide objective analysis. That is not to bend to the wishes or desires of the policymaker, but to continue to perform that analytic function. Let's talk through that. How do you think that is playing out in the intelligence community? Well, obviously, I have no way of knowing what it's working about today. I think the danger there, though, is that while, as you said, of course, if if the decision maker disagrees with you, it's your responsibility to go back and really thoroughly second guess yourself and recheck and everything else. But if then your your experts continue to look at things and continue to submit analysis and predictions based on their best understanding, that could easily be misinterpreted as you're fighting the problem, you're not a team player, you're not on board, because they keep saying, well, you know, this is probably not going to work because of, and I really don't have an easy answer to that, because as I've said in the book, I think that a wise decision maker in any business should like to have someone who has not drunk the Kool-Aid, who is right. not not committed to the course of action that the boss wants. But it is natural to expect. And you often hear this even in business, I think, that once we make the decision, no arguments, do it my way. Mm-hmm. Well, that's understandable. But of course, the decision is not an end point because life goes on. And suddenly there may be a decision saying, and again, let's take it to the president's level, I am deciding as commander in chief that I'm going to do this, even if the intelligence suggests that that is not likely to work for the policy goal, but the decision is made to do that. It's still the job of intelligence to assess what happens next. So getting on board doesn't mean agreeing that the world has changed. It means getting on board and assessing the implications of that policy, right? Absolutely. And as I said, you really do need to do your darndest, and I'm sure that's happened to you, to loyally do what the boss at any level wants you to do, but it, you and not just assume it's going to be a failure because you disagree with it, but it's still kind of difficult to do in reality. Right. Well, I want to close with something you wrote in your book that I think is is important here. You You mentioned that Using the Huntington model, you find that the U.S. intelligence community overall has been ready to function as a profession in the sense of conducting critical work, using education and experience while holding its members to high standards. And I think this is reflected in the fact that when there is a so-called intelligence failure, like predicting WMD in Iraq, things like that, there are extensive studies within the intelligence community on top of whatever independent commissions and other things come. There is there is always the self-criticism and the analysis that happens sometimes unbeknownst to the public. Where did we get this wrong and how could we fix it? So I think you're right on those fronts. But you make a plea for civilian leaders of the government to recognize intelligence work more explicitly as a profession, including appointing career members of the profession to head the agencies, to act as inspectors general, as directors of national intelligence, and other positions. Now, 
obviously the last administration, we had, we saw some aberrations there. We saw some people promoted to the head of the intelligence community who, who were not career intelligence officers. And in many cases were almost the opposite people who were chosen because they did not have extensive intelligence experience. Do you get the sense that that's going to continue to happen because it is so based on the whim of the policymaker? Or can you sense a general trend that we're getting closer to your ideal whereby civilian leaders recognize intelligence work as a true profession? Well, I think we're getting closer to that. You mentioned earlier some of the the senior military people who then ended up as uh, some of the early DNIs and so on, having already spent 30-some years in the air. That, to me, is the ideal, but obviously I'm biased. Whether we can do that is it's subjective, and I certainly wouldn't dare second-guess any individual or criticize any individual about mm-hmm. that. But since we don't really have a career path that goes much beyond the, uh, you know, defense intelligence officer for Southwest Asia or, or the central intelligence briefer for such and such or whatever. And that's pretty much as far as they can go. It's an SES level, but that's still several levels below the people who get considered right. for, to be uh, DNI and, and senior heads of agencies in mm-hmm. those cases. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's still some room to go. That's for sure. John House, thank you for joining me. This has been really entertaining and hopefully informative. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Remember, you can get ad-free versions of this and some other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com slash lawfare. Please remember to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts and listen to our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, The Aftermath, and no bull. This podcast episode was edited by Jen Pacha Howell, your audio engineer this time, Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening.